We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 25. Again, that's Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25, and that reads, uh, starting in verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when he when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, and uh, from the least to the greatest, saying... This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. For a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, intent, uh, for the intent of your heart be forgiven you. For I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages and the Samaritans. Heavenly Father, we we come before you today, Lord, and we are humbled, humbled at what we have read about so far in Acts and also what is to come. Lord, we are thankful, thankful that you would gather us together, that you would give us your son, that you would you would have grace on us, Lord, and we pray today that our hearts are open. I pray that the Spirit is is magnified and the Spirit works powerfully, Lord, and at the end of the day, I pray that the, your, your worthiness, the worthiness of Christ is put on display. Lord, I pray that you are with us today, that everything that that follows from this point forward or even this point before, uh, Lord, glorifies you and brings you fame. It is because of the work of your Holy Son that I am able to pray these things in your holy name. Amen.
So since we started our study in Acts three or four months ago, I've kind of had this nagging question kind of week after week as we study the incredible things that we've seen so far in Acts, and I know of the things that are to come, and that question is, how does this type of thing happen? What fuels this kind of expansion of the church that constantly faces obstacles and constantly overcomes them? Blake did a great job on week one, kind of giving us an overview of the book of Acts and just showing how the church constantly expands regardless of what obstacles are put in their way. And the obstacles are pretty intense. We've seen some incredible things already where we have the ascension of of Christ into heaven, where he tells us that the Holy Spirit will come, it will give us power, it will give us boldness, and that's certainly true because Peter all of a sudden is preaching at Pentecost, and he doesn't have a very seeker-sensitive sermon. He basically just says, you hated Jesus, you rejected Jesus, you crucified Jesus, but Jesus still saves, so repent. And thousands of people repent. Thousands of people come to Christ. And Peter keeps preaching that same message. He gets himself into trouble, right? He goes before the religious authorities, and they say, hey, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter's like, okay, man, I understand what you're saying, but listen, let's talk about Jesus, though. And so he continues to talk about Jesus. They beat him. He rejoices that he's counted worthy of being for suffering for the name of Christ. It's like, what can you do to this type of guy? At one point, they are lining the streets with the sick and the lame. And that's not the uncool. That's the people who can't walk and are disabled. Uh, But he's lining the street with the sick and the lame. And they're hoping that as Peter walks by, his shadow would fall on them and they would be healed. We're talking about Peter, the guy who all throughout the Gospel of John that we read, right? Like he had good days and he had bad days. He couldn't defend his faith against a very scary little girl. And now his shadow is healing people. What happened? What's happened, right? And so we see these, uh, these miraculous signs. We see the same signs that Jesus was doing. His apostles are now doing. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. And you have to ask, are, are, these, are these guys in the book of Acts, are, are they just varsity and we're just JV? Because I've never healed anybody. Uh, I, I've never seen expansion like this. We hear stories about like in the recesses of, of China and different parts of the, of the country, this types of thing happens. But what, what fuels this? What brings this about? And another thing that I've been thinking about since week one of this study is, is a story that I read years ago about a man named Michael Sadler. He lived in the uh, early 1500s, and he was a Catholic priest, and he's sitting there, and he's studying his Bible, but he's noticing that there's some things that he's reading in Scripture that aren't really jiving with what he was taught in seminary, and so he starts asking questions that get him in a lot of trouble. He starts asking questions about where exactly in the Bible is, is the authority of the Pope and, and infant baptism and the belief that you can't be saved unless you do the sacraments of the church, and he ends up getting kicked out of the church and labeled a heretic. Well, he continues preaching what he found in the Bible, which to beginning to end was Jesus. So he goes and he preaches Jesus and Christ alone and faith alone in Christ. Well, they catch up to him about a year or two later, and he's condemned as a heretic, so he's executed. His execution, and I'm going to give you the PG version, it's still a little bit intense. His execution was intense, where they, they 
attempted to cut his tongue out of his mouth because that's what they did to heretics. They were unsuccessful, so they just cut a large chunk out of it. I don't know if I would rather them be successful or unsuccessful. They both sound pretty terrible. But then they prod him with red-hot rods. They drag him to the execution site, bind him to a ladder, and toss him into a fire. That was his execution. In the fire, with half of his tongue... He prays that God would forgive the people who are doing this to him and that God would show them the error of their way and that they would repent. I don't know what would be going on in my mind if that had happened. I don't think it would be that. When the fire had reached the rope that bound his wrists, he lifted up his two index fingers like this. And he did that because the group of people that he traveled with, they knew that they weren't preaching a popular message. They knew that they were going against the power of the Pope and the power of the Catholic Church. So what they did was they came up with a sign. And they said, if you are to face martyrdom, but the pain is worth it. The pain is bearable. If Christ is worth it, this is the sign I want you to give to encourage everyone else who may face the same fate that it is worth it. And that's when maybe it hit me. Maybe this is what happens. This in the book of Acts and things like it, maybe that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is able to work through a person or a group of people who are so enamored with the surpassing worthiness of Christ that they care nothing about the things of this world or the things that may come upon them for preaching Christ and Him crucified. Maybe the fundamental question here and the people of Acts ask that we maybe fail to ask is, do I get more Jesus? Because if I get more Jesus, no matter what I have to give up, it is worth it. I come out ahead. And so in our text today, we're going to see exactly that. We're going to see that Jesus is worth our lives. Jesus is worth our obedience. And Jesus is worth our relationships. Look with me in verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. Now we have to do a little bit of work. Who's his? In verse 1, we're talking about Stephen. Blake covered the, the execution of Stephen last week where he is stoned to death for standing up in the temple and basically giving them a little history lesson and telling them that Jesus really is who he says he is. They don't like that. They drag him out of the temple and they stone him. And Saul is here. And I don't feel bad about the spoiler alert because Blake already said it last week. Saul is Paul. That's who we think of as Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. That's him. So you know something crazy is going to happen in this guy's life because right now he's approving of the execution of Stephen. Stephen taught something that does not jive at all with old school Judaism, which is that Christ is the Messiah and that you are no longer bound by the law for Christ has fulfilled it and you are saved by grace through faith. So it says that Saul approved of this execution. If we remember from last week, he guarded the coats as the people stoned him. And that's a, that's a public approval. Like, hey man, you should come participate in here. Don't worry about your stuff. I'll guard it to make sure nothing happens to it. So you are full and ready to focus on what's going on over here. 
And it says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And that makes sense. Up to this point, it had been building up where the punishments were getting worse and worse. It was just, don't do this anymore. Don't do this anymore. Now we got to rough you up a little bit. Now we got to put you in jail. But, uh, you know, an angel of the Lord comes down and just opens up the doors and they go right back to preaching. So now it has reached a point of death. From this point forward, Jesus will cost you your life. You will die if you are in Jerusalem openly preaching Jesus. This is no longer, maybe you get roughed up, maybe you spend an overnighter in jail. You will be killed. The bar is raised. And it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, I'll send the Spirit. The Spirit will come down. He'll give you power. He'll give you boldness. And the gospel will spread from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we're in Sulphur, Louisiana. So we know that happened. If the epicenter is Jerusalem, suffers on the other side of the world. So the gospel is successfully spread to the other side of the world. And so here we have the fulfillment of that. That shows us that Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus is in control of this. He is still sovereign. Even though his church is now being persecuted, he is in control. And it's interesting that this word scattered, it doesn't mean flighty. It doesn't mean disorganized. It means that these people simply chose to abandon Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem. They saw these things that happened, and they chose to leave. It's not like an announcement comes across the radio that a tornado has touched down, and you have to get out of this place. These people have looked at the situation, and they decided, I'm going to go elsewhere. Maybe, probably, back to where they're actually from. They're probably just in Jerusalem for something or some period of time, and now they're going to go back to their homes. But it says, except the apostles. We have to remember that Jesus told the apostles not to leave Jerusalem, and Jesus hasn't lifted that yet. So as the elders of the church in Jerusalem, as the overseers, they are staying. Their flock is being persecuted. Some of them are staying. Some of them are deciding to leave. That's their choice, but the weight of their calling keeps them in Jerusalem. They must stay. They must continue to reflect Christ through this tough time. And Luke takes a little bit of a weird caveat here, and he tells us more about Stephen. And he says, now devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, it was Jewish law that even a criminal who was executed be buried, but you're not supposed to lament over the death. He broke the law. He's a heretic. We're not supposed to be sad that he was killed, but it says that they made great lamentation over him. And so what this means is that they are devout men, men that are well thought of, men that are well known, and they are making some noise over the death of Stephen. They are calling attention to themselves. This dude was just killed for going against the authorities. And here they are calling attention to themselves, saying, I stand with Stephen. He was wrongfully killed. This is not maybe a type of situation where you really want to call attention to yourself over the dude, because the dude that you are bearing was just killed for the same reasons that you are calling attention to yourself, that you were followers of Christ, that you agreed with his message. And so it shows that the people who are remaining in Jerusalem, they're also not discouraged. 
They're not scared. The church is not in a panic, though they are being persecuted. To what extent are they being persecuted? Well, let's see. Verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We know the veracity of Paul, the apostle. It's the same with Saul. The ravaging of the church here, this word ravaging can have two possible meanings. A, the result of a wild beast attacking, attacking a body, or B, a military term, which is, a, a, um, which is meaning of an uh, of a army invading an enemy city and, and bringing it to destruction. And so he is seeking to destroy the church. And, and Luke gives us a description. And he says he was destroying the church by entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. Paul gives us his take on what he was doing all the way in chapter 22, where he adds committing them to death. So it wasn't just locking them up. It wasn't just roughing them up. It wasn't just telling them that they shouldn't do this anymore. Paul was sentencing people to death. Let's bring that to our context. Because maybe that doesn't sound like something we can relate to. That would be as though I come up here and I put my Bible and my notes on this pulpit and I say, before we get started, I do want to let y'all know, maybe some of y'all already know, that Blake and his family, David and his family, Trent and his family were arrested last night. They have been dragged off to prison and we will probably never see them again for preaching this word right here. So I have filled in their place and I am going to preach the word as an obedient Christian. And during my sermon, they come in here, they put handcuffs on me, and they drag me away. And while they're dragging me away, I said, who wants to be a part of Christ? Who wants a part of this? Do you not? And we would expect everyone to be silent. But in Jerusalem, thousands are coming to Christ. Why? Who sees that and says that is attractive? And what's happening is that they are seeing, they're becoming enamored with the value and the majesty and the worthiness of Christ so much so that they would say, he is worth my life. Even if that means I'm arrested and I'm dragged off and I'm killed, he's worth it. Does that get me more Jesus? Then I will do it. They're operating on a different, a different dimension almost than we operate on. They're operating not out of, out of an American idea where the pursuit of happiness is the, is the greatest thing, but the Christian worldview where the pursuit of holiness is what we're after. The Christian pursuit is a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of Christ, the source of our holiness. And they will lay down anything, including their lives to get closer to Christ. So there's the persecution, but next we see the response. There is the forsaken, or the forsaking of the comfort for the persecution, and the response to that is, in verse 4, now those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. Those who decided to leave Jerusalem, they are still preaching the word. They are going back to wherever it was they came from, wherever they scattered to, and they are preaching the word. And that's very interesting because they have the opportunity to say, this whole Christian thing didn't work out. It got some of my friends killed. It got some other people that I know killed. It didn't work out. I'm going to go back to where I'm from, and I'm not going to talk about this anymore because it didn't work out well. But instead, they go about preaching the word. Luke is going to zoom in a little bit more to one person who is scattered. So... Who knows how many are scattered, but now we get the story of Philip. So we're going to get Philip's point of view of what's happened. And in verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, this is particularly interesting that he would bring up Samaria first. If you remember, Jerusalem and Samaria don't like each other. And I did a little bit of research. The origin of them not liking each other is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a long time ago. We're well past that. For thousands of years, these people have not liked each other. And Philip says, I'll go to Samaria. Perhaps Philip was from Samaria. We don't know. But he says, I'll go to Samaria and I will proclaim to them the Christ. And it says, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the things that he did. And so he goes to Philip, or he goes to Samaria, and he already has a basis on which to operate because they're also Jewish. They're also looking for a Messiah. And he comes and he says, hey, I have the story of Jesus. We know that Jesus himself preached in Samaria. So perhaps they even know who he's talking about. And Philip tells them, hey, things didn't really work out for, for him in Jerusalem. But listen up, there's a greater story to be told. And so he does signs. And, and Luke tells us what those signs are. It says, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed so that there was much joy in the city. So Philip shows up and he does the same work that Jesus did casting out demons, and healing people. And these miracles have always served as a purpose not to puff up, puff up the person who is doing them, but to point to the validity and the confirmation of the message being taught. So they view this as a confirmation of God's decided deliverance. They listen to him with one accord. They listen to him and it says, and there's much joy in the city. Now, this is, this is an important gap that is being bridged. From Jerusalem to Samaria, these kingdoms have been divided since like the times of David. They haven't liked each other since Deuteronomy. They've regarded themselves as completely separate since the times of David. And so Philip, who is not one of the 12 apostles, is now doing miraculous signs. That's also interesting. The miraculous signs started with Christ. They went to his apostles, and now Philip is doing them, who is not one of the 12 apostles. And these signs confirmed Philip's message. But in verse 9, it says, But there was a man named Simon 
who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. And it says they all paid attention to him. Now, we just read that they all paid attention to Philip. Before Philip showed up, they all paid attention to Simon. And so it says they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, look in your Bibles. The power of God that is called great should all be capitalized. The reason for that is, is they're not calling Philip great. They're saying that Philip has the power of God, that Philip has the power of Yahweh. And I messed that up. Simon has the power of Yahweh. With his magic, he has deceived them into thinking that he has the power of God, that he is a divine messenger with divine power. And so they've all been paying attention to Simon until Philip shows up with the gospel. And it says, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing the signs and great miracles performed, and he was amazed. The one who previously amazed others with magic and, and miracles, which we're going to put that in quotes because they were done through magic, um, he is now amazed. So he knows his little bag of tricks. He knows what he can do. But when he sees the power that Philip comes with, he says, well, my power has nothing on that. I am now amazed. Now this sets up a conflict between Simon and the message that Simon has claimed to believe. But what we see through Philip here, because Philip's going to drop off after this point, but what we see through Philip here is even though he saw what happened in Jerusalem, and if we remember back to chapter 6, Philip served alongside of Stephen as one of the seven that made sure that the widows were being taken care of in the church. So he knew Stephen personally. He served in a small group of leadership with Stephen. Stephen is stoned to death. Philip goes to Samaria and he is obedient. He knows that the Great Commission does not come with a list of exceptions where go make disciples wherever you go unless your best friend gets killed, in which case, chill out for a while and wait for things to calm down. He's still obedient to the call of Christ, so he goes back to Samaria and he preaches the gospel. And through Philip, we can see Christ is worthy of our obedience. Regardless of what that may bring upon us, he is worthy of our obedience. And so what we see through Simon being amazed is that Christ is actually better than anything our culture has to offer. Now in verse 14, things start to get a little bit interesting. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, word gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, Philip went to Samaria. He preached the gospel. People are believing. People are being baptized. And, and what they decide, what Peter and John decide is, hey, we're going to go up there and we're going to make sure that everything's legitimate. 
that the gospel is the same here as it is there, and that everything is going well. They're acting kind of like overseers of the gospel, expanding outside of Jerusalem. And so when they come, when they come down, they pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit, they being John and um, Peter, they come down to pray that they, Samaria, uh, the people that believe in Samaria, receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This verse gave me fits. I had no idea what to do with it. I text David probably a week ago and said, hey, I wish this verse just wasn't in here. My sermon would be so much better if the Holy Spirit did not put this verse in here. Because now I've got to deal with it. Now I've got to explain it. And it interrupts my train of thought. But what's happening here is actually beautiful. First of all, right off the bat, we see in verse 16, for he had not yet fallen. A confirmation that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force, but he is God. He is a man. He has, um, he has a personality, right? This is not some may the force be with you kind of stuff. This is the third person of the Trinity, and it says, For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. We are talking about, in many ways, in many parallels and similarities, a Samaritan Pentecost. The same thing that happened at Pentecost in Jerusalem, where Peter preaches, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and there's this physical manifestation of the Spirit same thing happens in Samaria. This marks something significant. This is not the ordinary. This is something extraordinary. This is not how it happens from this point forward. This is how it happened this time. And the question has to be, why? Why did it happen this time? Why in Samaria? I don't really feel like I need to point out the fact that Jerusalem and Samaria don't like each other. This is a bridging of a very deep and wide gap. This is the bridging of racial tension, of religious tension. This is the effects of Jesus dying and coming back and being resurrected again and that dividing wall of hostility that we talked about in Ephesians being torn down. There has to be a big manifestation, a big sign that the gospel unites people regardless of how long they didn't like each other or how much they don't like each other. I brought up earlier, these people have not really been any level of united since the kingdom of David. And finally, the kingdom is reunited, not under King David, but under King Jesus. The gospel brings this unity that for 500 years was not able to be accomplished. A couple sermons are preached. The spirit falls. Everything is confirmed. Nothing can be denied. Gospel unity is brought about. Amen. Gospel unity is brought about. It says in verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He, being Simon, offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter's about to go from zero to ten, guys. <laughs> he is not playing. This shows Simon's heart. This shows that his belief and baptism just a few verses ago are, are not what they cracked up to be. It's not what it looked like they were. And Peter responds. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. And I'm going to stop there, and we're, we're going to break apart Peter's response here. But what Peter just said would be completely and utterly shocking, especially since Simon already sees Peter as really, really powerful. He basically sees P Peter as a really powerful sorcerer or a really powerful magician that has access to more power than Simon does. And he says, you and your money can go forth into destruction. There's a very colloquial way I can put that right now, but I'm not going to. But he's like, you and your pair, you and your silver, y'all can burn in hell for all eternity. And we might be like, Peter, we might need to talk about like grace and finesse. But Peter is serious. Peter views this gospel message as not one to be manipulated, not one that is looking for, foremost for the, for the benefit of making money, which is what Simon wanted to do, manipulate people to make money and gain notoriety. But he says, may your silver perish with you, with you because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. The gift of God, which is infinitely valuable, that is sovereignly bestowed on people by the Holy Spirit with money, with something that has no worth whatsoever. Working at a bank has really destroyed like my view of money. Me and, and a couple other guys have been talking about this a lot lately where I don't view money as, as worth anything at all because people ask me like, how much money have you seen in cash? And I'm like, half a million dollars in cash? $100 bills strapped. I strapped them. I counted it. And they're like, what'd that feel like? I was like, a chore? Because money is gross. And it took like 45 minutes to count it by hand because the currency counters weren't working. And they're like, well, have you ever been tempted? No, because it's, it's just like disgusting paper that people pull out of weird places and give to me. And I was like, no, it's not. But it's also helped me see that, that money is just like numbers on a screen. It, it just comes and goes. And we ascribe so much value to it. And it's useful. Don't get me wrong. Money is useful, but it only has value because everyone in this room has decided that it has value. If we all decided that it didn't, then it wouldn't anymore. But the gifts of God from the beginning of time to the consummation, are infinitely valuable. And he says, you thought you could trade this worthless stuff for the gifts of God? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And he says, your level of thinking is so, just, is so off, it's so distorted, that you have no part in anything that's going on here. And if he left right there, I'd be like, maybe Peter is a little bit stern. I can't really say nothing. These words are written by the Holy Spirit after all. But Peter says in verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of your hearts, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. What we see here through Peter's response to Simon 
is that Jesus is worth our relationships. This is actually how we should interact with one another. Any brother or sister in Christ needs to be surrounded with people who see Christ as more valuable than they see their relationship so that their relationship does not distort the gospel where it says, man, I've seen this dude in this sin and I've wanted to say something, but we've been bros for a long time and I don't want this to affect our friendship. And Peter says, nah, fam, that ain't how this is going down. You need to repent of this wickedness and pray that if possible, Whatever that means, the Lord will forgive you. Amen. 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 That's right, Jeff. <laughs> if you are not surrounded by people who are willing to say, I like our, me and our relationship, but I love the relationship I have with Christ more, and I see these sins in your life, and I'm calling you to repentance, and I'm going to give them a name. Because I promise you, if you are hanging out with a group of dudes and you see sin in their lives and you're just standing back and being like, yeah, fam, everything's cool. I know you struggle. We struggle. We got mess to deal with because you don't want to call it sin. You don't want to give it a name. They don't love you. And if you're not doing that with another group of men, you aren't loving them. This is what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to see Christ and our relationship with him as more valuable than anything else in the world, even the dude who you've been walking with since kindergarten through sin, and that's at least what it feels like. Call that dude to repentance. Give his sin a name, and not like a squishy name, like, man, I know you've been like struggling with some stuff. Peter says, I hope your silver Paris is with you. I don't necessarily recommend starting like that, but <laughs> he said, but he gives it a sin. I mean, he gives his sin a name. He says, you were in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That's, a, that's an idiom. That's a Greek idiom. Like we would say it's raining cats and dogs. Apparently they would say the gall of bitterness. And that's, that's you are entrapped in the center in, in a maze of bitterness, in the guts of bitterness. And he said, you are so so jealous of the power that you perceive me to have, you've missed the whole message that my power comes from Christ, my power comes from the Holy Spirit, and you are in this bond of iniquity that blinds you to the truthfulness of the gospel. And he says, hey man, humbly beg the Lord for pardon for this wickedness. And Simon's response only confirms Peter's suspicions. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. In all of my meetings, in all of my trying to do life with one another, and all the dudes that I've met with, this is by far the most frustrating response to the call to repentance. I tell the dudes that I meet with on a regular basis, don't worry about being right, just be honest. If I call you to repentance and you think that what I've said is a complete load and is ridiculous, just tell me that. But Simon says, hey man, can you pray for me? That none of the punishment of my sin comes upon me? 
can you pray that like I don't receive any consequences for my sin because because what you just said was convicting and and I don't like it and and then the punishment that that I've been taught comes from that separation from Christ and and I don't really like that either so could you just pray for me and pray that like none of those negative consequences come upon me I would rather I, I would rather just say, uh, "Hey, man, um, I don't really believe any of the stuff that you're saying anymore, and, and we're not really going to meet anymore because I think this has all gotten ridiculous." As opposed to someone saying, "Hey, man, I believe what you're saying, and I'm cut to the heart, but um, I really don't want the consequences that you said." So, so if I can just avoid my consequences, I can continue doing my sin without consequence, and that's really what I'm after anyway. But the value that we have or that we see Christ with affects our relationships in such a way that that's not the response. That's not the response that we're seeking. We're seeking a humble begging for pardon from the Lord for the sins that we have committed against Him. When we see our relationships correctly, that's the response. Unfortunately, that was not Simon's response. And so Luke, Luke just kind of wraps this thing up and saying, now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, being Peter and John, returned to, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And what we see from Peter and John is their continued obedience. They go back to Jerusalem with that could cost them their lives. They see their continued viewing Christ as valuable, viewing Christ as worthy of their lives. We see that they are preaching the gospel. Everywhere that they go, the gospel goes with them. We see their continued obedience, their continued caring for, for the relationships for the, with the people around them. And what we have to ask ourselves today is what fills in the blank when we ask the question, if I get more blank, then it's worth it. What's in our blank? For them, for the people of Acts, for the people that have witnessed God just flexing on dudes, it's Jesus. If I get more Jesus, then it's worth it. What is it for us? If I get more money, if I get more notoriety, if I get that promotion, if, if, if my marriage would finally be healed, then it's worth it. If my relationships with others improve, then that would be worth it. We have to understand that the church in Jerusalem was not a comfortable place to be, and that's also why it grew, because the church has never been stamped out through persecution. The only way the church has ever been weakened is through comfort. When the church is comfortable, it is less effective. So we have to ask ourselves, Sulphur Community Church, how comfortable are we? Maybe our comfort is coming from a, a misalignment of what is most valuable. Is Christ most valuable? Then maybe our priorities would be a little bit different. Lastly, lastly, we should take from this that regardless of what Christ calls us to give up, and He will call us to give up everything, we will not lose in that trade. Be affirmed in that. It's scary 
when Christ calls you to give up your job. It's scary when Christ calls you away from that toxic relationship that isn't working. That road is hard. I'm not saying that traveling that road isn't hard. I'm saying that traveling that road is worth it because you get more Jesus. And so right now, I'm just going to pray that we get more Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we are, we are thankful. We're thankful that we get your Son. We're thankful that we are called away from our sin and our bitterness, and we are called into the glorious light of your Son, Lord. We are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that you have faithful testimony in your word that, that tells us, that, that gives us examples of how worthy Christ is and that we can follow those examples. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that comes and gives us power and boldness to follow the example of your Son. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we pray that day by day we view your son as most valuable, as most worthy. In your name I pray these things. Amen.